Are you interested in private practice but not sure where to start? Maybe you already do some private work but you're looking to do more. If so, then this episode is for you as we are joined by Mr. Giles Davies, who's a consultant onculoplastic breast surgeon and the clinical director of breast surgery at the Cromwell Hospital in London. We talk about why you should consider private practice and I think Giles's answer to that question will resonate with all of us is not just about the money. We also get into the details about where to work, how to get practicing privileges and how to start your private practice in a cost-effective manner. If you thought private work was just for surgeons or procedural-based specialists, then think again as we hear from Giles how he's helped GPs and physios and other health professionals to get started in their private practice. Giles has actually built an online course and community which can help you get started in your private practice today, and he's generously offering Medics Money podcast listeners a 25% discount. So in order to get that discount, you need to go to www.privatepracticepro.co.uk forward slash Medics Money, and I'll drop that link in the show notes below. You can also view a free 25-minute taster session where Giles will take you through what to expect from his course. So definitely check out that link www.privatepracticepro.co.uk forward slash medics money. Giles and Private Practice Pro are generously supporting the Medics Money podcast which allows us to keep bringing you all the latest free financial CPD for doctors. Welcome to the Medics Money podcast. My name is Dr. Tommy Perkins and I'm a GP. And my name is Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and a chartered tax advisor. And yes, you did hear that right. Not only is Ed a doctor, he's also a chartered accountant and a tax advisor. Medics Money empowers doctors and other professionals like you to make better financial decisions. So today it's my pleasure to welcome Mr. Giles Davies to the podcast. Hi, Giles. How are you doing? Hello there. I'm great. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on today to talk about your career as a private surgeon and how other people can get involved in private medicine. But um, do you want to just uh, introduce yourself to the Medics Money podcast listeners and tell us a bit about how you got started and where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I'm a consultant uh, in hospital medicine. I'm a surgeon by training. I'm an oncoplastic breast surgeon, which is a sort of fancy word for somebody who treats breast cancer, essentially, with surgery and reconstruction. And I'm the director of uh, breast surgery at the Cromwell Hospital, which is a large independent hospital in Kensington and London. I was a NHS consultant for just under 12 years at Kingston, Kingston-upon-Thames, and uh, with a contract at the Royal Marsden Hospital. And I trained at good old St. George's Hospital in Tooting um, back in... 19 something, 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 you know? And um, so, yeah, I left the NHS around four years ago, 2017 time. Um, and I'm now in full-time independent private practice. And I have a number of roles apart from just being a consultant surgeon. I'm an examiner at St. George's Hospital. I have a role within Bupa as a sort of parent organization. I do things like editing the uh, patient content for a lot of Bupa products. I help design Bupa products and I teach and lecture on their sort of some of their leadership courses and things like that. So lots of little things around the sides of day-to-day -day cancer surgery, which has obviously been quite challenging at the moment. Awesome. And you've also made an online course called the Private Practice Pro, which mm. can help um, other people get into private practice. They're definitely going to talk about that in a bit, but one thing that I just wanted to know is, 
you know, how do you, how do you even get started or how did you get started in, in your private practice? You know, where do you start? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really like a dark art, isn't it? And I think as junior doctors, we often see uh, hospital consultants sort of um, disappearing and we wonder where they've gone or, or why they're late to their clinic or leaving a bit early. And it's a sort of historical thing. And I think it comes almost from that sort of doctor in the house, sort of Sir Lancelot Spratt kind of um, idea. And people always saw, saw it as a sort of apprenticeship model. I always thought it was a bit like the army because the chap I took over from at Kingston had been there for 27 years, you know, so he was quite fierce and stern. He shouted at a lot of people. He had this sort of Aston Martin that was a growl as arrived at the car park and you knew that you had to sort of get the scans ready. And you often started in private practice as a registrar assisting um, one of your you know, senior colleagues, your consultants, and they would give you little tips and advice and, um, you know, sort of, well, I would do this and I would do that. And you were sort of almost groomed for the consultant post. I think that's changed a lot now. So the entry point at private practice is really instant. And there's a lot of reasons for that. One is that we've, we don't really have these boundaries and barriers that we used to. And it used to be that if you were a, uh, a hospital consultant, you'd probably have to settle in for a year or two before you could dip your toes in down the road by registering for practicing privileges, typically at your local private hospital. But of course, what things like telemedicine has done is it's just made um, uh, treating patients wherever they are completely accessible. And so you don't need to be invited in to the club to um, join your colleagues um, down the road and, and sort of be approved by senior people. So it's no longer senior doctors who are actually leading the way in private medicine. Um, we um, approve a lot of young, dynamic, innovative consultants at the Cromwell Hospital based on competency and merit now, rather than how long you've been there and who you know. So uh, I think it's a sort of like a sort of it's not the Bullingdon Club, but it's um, it's a sort of that model of uh, entry has changed. So typically you become a consultant and then you would um, look at uh, obtaining practicing privileges and then taking out indemnity insurance with uh, an insurance company to allow you to practice privately. And that's sort of based on how much you're earning. And it's actually remarkable how predictable private practice can be. Someone said to me years and years ago, they said, I can guarantee, Giles, if you do some private practice, whether you're a surgeon or a, a, an endocrinologist, you will earn £50,000 of additional income in your first year. I thought, how, how do they know that? And it's absolutely true, particularly if you're an NHS consultant, because, of course, what you're doing is um, there are patients in your NHS care who then choose to seek you out privately. And that can be just through choice. If you work in someone like Kingston-upon-Thames, you know, 15 or 20% of the patients in NHS hospital are people who have health insurance. If you work in Clacton, I can say that because I live near my parents' house, um, good old Clacton or Jaywick Sands, um, you know, it's obviously a lot less than that. Um, and of course, people pay for their own care as well. So, um, you know, there, there are boundaries and, and rules and regulations around that, but you can you can start almost without any sort of marketing budget or any sort of uh, need to sort of launch your private practice by just being there. 
Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it's changed for the positive, really, because instead of so. being a closed old boys club, shall we say, in the past, it's now much more open. Um, that Very you much said. so. But, um, you know, when we're at medical school, I don't think anyone even mentioned private practice. Uh, I noticed that the dermatology lecturers often arrive late and uh, left early um, yes. for reasons unknown to me, but uh, obviously yes. I know now. Yes. But, um, you know, so, so the barriers have gone from the old boys club, but yeah. still, I think, you know, how do you get started? You mentioned practicing privileges and yeah, that's you know. right. I think there's a perception. I mean, you've you've people don't realize that even as a general practitioner, you can work privately. And um, in order to work privately, you need to have insurance to do it, and you need to be um, registered with um, the major medical insurers um, to be recognized by them so that you can put an invoice in and be paid. So if you're insured with Bupa, and I, I treat your hernia, uh, and I put in a code, you know, I've done a hernia repair um, on Tommy, and they would pay me a fee for that. Um, and so that's how sort of hospital medicine works. It's on a fee for service. You're based on insurance codes, codes based on uh, being recognized by major insurers and having professional indemnity and somewhere to work, which is practicing privileges. But of course, if you're a GP, um, you can do a you know five day Botox talk course and start sort of injecting people's faces um, wherever you want, and of course then you're talking about things related to perhaps the Care Quality Commission. So you need to work in a premises that is sort of reasonable and reputable, ideally regulated with the Care Quality Commission. And actually, interesting, what's changed an awful lot is that hospitals, private hospitals. And these could be chains of private hospitals like Spire or Nuffield, but also um, private wings of NHS hospitals are actually looking for GPs. And most of these private hospitals now actually want a GP service because they recognize that specialist care comes from primary care. And so the best uh, pipeline for their um, hospital activity, which is really inpatient activities where the money is being made by these hospitals, they want operations happening. Um, is from primary care referrals. So what better way than to have these doctors in-house? And so people um, can start in private general practice as well. I think it's tricky because, and one of the pieces of advice I give doctors is really, really define what you are going to offer and keep it really, really simple to start with. So you do not want to be opening a GP surgery where suddenly you've got out of hours stuff going on. And dermatology is a good example, isn't it? Because if you're a GP with a special interest in dermatology, that's really quite a defined thing. And you might work and have a very close relationship with a, a consultant dermatologist or a plastic surgeon who treats early skin cancer. And you can um, actually start seeing patients privately who would pay um, um, to see you. And as long as you can find somewhere to work and actually people are actually working in, for example, pharmacies or in dental surgeries, because a lot of dental surgeries are CQC registered, aren't they? So these are premises that are clean, have infection control, can dispose of hazardous waste. You know, they're, they're sort of like a polyclinic. Um, and they, so there's lots of little doctors popping their heads up all around the country, doing really nice things um, and really interesting things, particularly in the wellness space. That's a really big area. Yeah. Uh, wellness. Yeah. I think sort of areas where the NHS doesn't even have a service is always a good place to launch. Yeah. A product, mental health. It? Well, yeah. You know, um, yeah. It's, it's going to be another massive, massive, massive. Yeah. Area. 
It's really interesting as a GP with a special interest in dermatology like me uh, that mm. you know we can just get started. Uh, might might uh, might go on the course uh, after this, but um, absolutely, listen, it can't all be roses. So let's go. Let's no. go for the positives of. Let, yeah. Give me some pros of uh, you know the differences between NHS practice, private practice. What's what's better privately, and is anything worse? I mean, I honestly thought that, uh, and one uh, you know, the first thing I'd say is that medicine and money do not mix well and you know if you're going into or you're thinking about doing private medical practice in order to be rich and drive around in a ferrari you'll probably come unstuck at some point because if you drive it, it although it's a business and you need to have a business mindset and you really do need to have a business mindset you're you're treating patients and so um, the biggest positive of private medical practice is being able to practice the type of medicine that you really enjoy doing or, or deliver the quality of care that you think is important for your patients. And most of that comes around time. You know, if I can spend 40 minutes with you, Tommy, talking about your mole and you know, if it's melanoma or not or whatever, and carefully examining you and that's great. If I breeze in and I'm five minutes later, I'm gone. And you're not even sure whether I really looked properly at you um, or I'm on the phone or the nurse is interrupting, then you're going to have a poor experience. So uh, it's about delivering the sort of medicine you want to. So that's the biggest positive. It's uh, choice because I now can choose whether I'm going to spend a Tuesday morning talking to Tommy Perkins <laughs> or having a lovely cappuccino with my coffee machine or getting in the car and going to the Cromwell for my big clinic. And I've chosen to do this, which is great. It's lovely. We're having a lovely time. But it is choice, choice about what you do when. And it becomes crystal clear, doesn't it? And you've, I think you've got a family. It, as soon as you've got kids, it's about, it's nothing worse. I've missed a lot of school plays. I've missed the birth just by a whisker. Uh, well, you know, I was literally there as it happened for two out of the three of my children's because I was both occasions removing someone's spleen as being on call as an emergency. Um, and there's nothing you can do about that. Um, and you'll, you'll live with those things for the rest of your life. So they're, they're, they're big negatives. So choice, um, the ability to uh, manage your own time and deliver the medicine you want to, the money just follows that because actually if you're passionate and you're, you know, enjoy what you're doing, you, you will earn a, a good living out of it. I think that I think that's going to resonate with every single mm -hmm. doctor listening to this podcast, mm -hmm. um, delivering your best medicine. Because if I could change one thing about my life as an yeah. NHS GP, it would simply be time instead of 10 minutes, which is absolutely, I mean, what can you realistically do in Nothing. 10 minutes? Nothing. You're constantly rushing. All I need is, as you say, if I had 30 or 40 minutes, I could, you know, go through it more thoroughly and communicate with the patient more. But yeah. as it is, it feels like a production line where you just, it it's never ending. It and you I don't think feel value do you? you don't feel. Value. Yeah. And, and you know that the patient has got the best that you can do with the resources that are available, but you yeah. know that it's not your absolute best. And yeah. that really, really annoys me uh, because I like to, you know, give it everything a decent shot. Yes. And I think that second thing about family, that's been huge for me, like huge, as you know, I don't practice full time in yes. the NHS anymore either. And uh, I get to take my kids to school and pick them up yeah. uh, two days a week. And that makes yeah. me feel incredibly yeah. wealthy. Um, yeah. So it I think that sense. just resonates with everybody, the choice and delivering your best medicine. Um, yes. But it can't all be roses in every no, is. At all. So let's get into it the cons. It's, it's financial, you know, you're, you're running a business and you, it, it, a lot of it comes around confidence because if you will, if you're in medicine for long enough, have 
issues. Um, you'll either be um, have proceedings taken against you for something that you had no control over at all. You'll have um, complaints. And like most people, I think we're very self-critical uh, as doctors. And if you have those knocks, professional knocks, it can really lose your confidence. And I think most people in life have what I call an element of imposter syndrome. Even now, having done, you know, two and a half, 2,800 operations or so, um, I still um, kind of feel, am I good enough? You know, why do people, why would people want to choose me? Or I sit in the boardroom sort of looking at my moleskin diary thinking they're going to see through me. I know nothing about financial management. I'm a complete imposter. I'm just going to say something, you know, positive. But of course, a lot of the skills we have as doctors about communication are very good skills for business because it's about negotiation, networking, clearly communicating with people. So you have to have a business mentality. And with that comes the risk that you're going to wake up tomorrow and it's only me. And if I can't do it, no one else can, particularly if you're a specialist, of course. And therefore uh, it's all sort of hanging over you. And I, um, I think the word is crapped myself for about a year after I left the NHS. I, I, I thought I was abandoning my beautiful old patients. I thought I was going to be seeing sort of irritated, well-off, privileged people moaning about everything. And, uh, and, and I was going to regret it massively. So I spent about a year getting ready for it. Because I felt the credibility I needed was going to give me the confidence. And the credibility for me came from research, being an examiner, doing the, stu- doing the A-level, uh, interviewing at my daughter's school, and all the other stuff that ma- made me feel like, actually, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good person, I think. I think I'm you know, contributing to society. I'm not a parasite. I'm not sucking out the, 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 the cream off the NHS and leaving everyone else to wallow in it. And I got over that quite quickly because I thought it's just about good medicine. So it's about having that absolute level of confidence. But you do have to think of it as a business, and there's a big risk with that. So many people, many people, particularly in primary care, would have a hybrid model. My wife, who runs her own uh, surgery, also does uh, one or two sessions a week of NHS. And that sort of settles the nerves, keeps you kind of in, in, in touch and I always thought, well, maybe I could locate him if I had to. But then I, you know, I was quite established, so I, I was quite confident about that. But uh, I think it, it's a lot of it is about confidence to do it. Yeah, um, I think it's a good, really good point as well that we don't receive any business training, but there's a um, tremendous amount of overlap in skills that all of us have as doctors yeah. that translate really, really well into the business world. And um, so I thought that's really interesting. So kind of following on from what you just said, you know, you started in the NHS, you worked in the NHS for yep. 12 years. Yeah. When when do you know that, yeah. that you're the right time to leave? I think it's, I mean, I, when I was doing my research and I had a two-year uh, MD thesis uh, at the Royal Marsden the Institute of Cancer Research, I met a chap um, just sort of over the coffee. He was the husband of the one of the postdoctoral researchers I was working with. And we were talking about stem cells and cord blood and our research kind of stuff. And he said, look, um, someone should set up a private cord blood storage company to store stem cells. I thought, yeah, that's a good idea. Obviously not thinking. And then about six months later, we did it. And I remember, if I, I, I don't know how I even thought about doing it, um, but we did it. We set up a, a small laboratory in Sussex 
using liquid nitrogen storage and registered with the human tissue authority. And don't get me wrong. This guy, Jeff was supremely qualified um, to, to scientifically to do that, but it needed that, that level of confidence. And I really enjoyed the sort of excitement of the uh, challenge ahead, you know, uh, almost like the uncertainty. Um, I found that really quite exciting. And I suppose that's part of surgery in terms of you are generally an adrenaline type of person. You kind of want to be, it's a bit of a show off thing. You kind of want to be seen or want to stride into the room, having taken out someone's appendix and say, he's going to be fine. Like, you know, the TV doctors do still think there's that mentality of self-importance that comes from arrogance that comes from uh, surgery, which is a, there's a very fine line, isn't there between being confident and arrogant. And then I, and, and when I um, had qualified, I was doing breast reconstruction, which at the time was quite a novel uh, discipline. So most of the surgeons were doing breast surgery with other types of surgery, thyroid surgery, a bit of general surgery. And they were on call for general surgery as well. And the breast surgery was always seen as the sort of weak discipline that was, um, you know, easy surgery. And if you did breast surgery, you were, you were, weren't very good because it wasn't difficult. And the, the breast surgeons couldn't do reconstruction. So I was asked to help one of my colleagues do some reconstructions in Harley Street. And I remember the first night wandering up to the London Clinic on a Thursday evening, um, assisting this chap um, to do a complicated breast reconstruction. And he sort of did his bit and then literally just switched off and in a very lazy way assisted me in the operation, which is the worst thing if you're a surgeon, having one of your colleagues assisting because they just are talking, they, they're not holding the retractors properly, they're not paying attention. Um, and you're like, Jesus, this is really serious. You know, I'm, I'm there sort of struggling away for four hours on a Thursday evening. And it, that became a regular pattern. And then I, um, he handed over his practice when he retired to me. And so I had this little sort of Harley street practice, which was kind of, uh, I had, I've got duchesses. I've got, um, you know, really, um, people who live in Eaton square, really sort of delightful people. And it got to the point where, you know, you're 92. I'm not sure you need a regular mammogram anymore. Um, you know, it's probably not the right thing to do now. What? You know, absolutely outrageous. I'm here, you know, for my regular checkup. No, that's fine. You know, we'll just carry on doing that. <laughs> that's what you want to do. So I kind of got into it through a skill set and uh, an interest in it. I suppose it did help that I was the right sort of chap at that time. You know, Harrow educated public school boy kind of helped. I, I I can't deny that really. I think you know those sorts of that that demographic was there then, uh, and it, it just isn't now. It just isn't totally different. Totally different. But there it was. You know, eight percent of surgeons were women in 1980. Uh, now probably half, more than half of all consultant breast surgeons are female. Quite rightly too. They're better at operating. They've got better uh, multitasking, uh, to fine point motor discrimination. You know, we just get fixed on one thing and at the expense of everything else, don't we? Yeah, yeah. It's great that, as you say, it's changed and it's much more open. And oh, uh, yeah. so, so that kind of led you to sort of uh, following into private practice and, and leave yes. uh, the NHS. Yeah. So, I mean, all of this sounds great, but what, what we often find it, with doctors is 
getting started is the hardest bit. Um, And that's why I'm really excited about the course that you've made, because Mm. essentially it helps. um, Well, you tell us about it because, you know, I said, just getting started, like everyone's listening to us thinking this sounds great, but what is the first step? And what I find is, you know, me and Ed (laughs) never really planned to start Medics Money, but once we'd started, it just kind of keeps snowballing from there, which is, but getting started was the hardest bit. There was no course on how to start Medics Money, but there is a course on how to start private practice. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing because actually it is literally that people just do not know what to do. And so um, when we started the course, Private Practice Pro, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche name, really, isn't it? Um, it, was a, it was my brother and I. And so my brother, who's a Freshfields you know, trained lawyer in the healthcare, in startup technology and video production, uh, had made his own course on crowdfunding and raising money and said, is there a course for private practice? I said, well, there's a sort of one day event you can go on um, where you listen to a few PowerPoint slides. And he said, well, we should make a course. And I thought, gosh, he's got the sort of the tail end of the course, which is sort of raising money, getting um, registering companies, understanding financial statements. I could actually learn from this myself, although I had sort of, you know, had quite a lot of experience around that anyway. But I could do the sort of absolute basics. What form do you need to fill out? You know, where is the form? And, you know, how do I get my DBS certificate renewal done? Um, you know, abs- just a checklist driven thing but using a video format to walk you through it. You know, how do you actually register a company? I mean, that's pretty scary stuff, isn't it? Because you think, God, am I committed? Am I going to have the inland revenue knocking my door? And if you like a lot of it, and particularly in the introductory part of the course, it's just breaking down those myths that people don't feel they could do it because they're not good enough. They haven't got enough time. They don't um, know how to do it. And actually say, look, you know, there's a lot of young, bright, talented doctors out there who are building apps, doing coaching, uh, offering training, uh, doing really interesting stuff. That is, and people really need to think really, really broadly in medicine. It's not just about private hospital consultant surgeons, which is what pe- people basically think of private medical practices as orthopedic surgeons, you know, or eye ophthalmologists. They don't think of it as as uh, I run a um, a health coaching business or I'm running a um, you know a, 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 a I'll, te- I'll tell you a couple of people on the course. I mean, there's some really interesting people in the first cohort of the course. One guy is a special forces medic who is a, a specialist in addiction, and he was on he was um, the army medic in um, the uh, SAS Who Dares Wins Channel Four series. And so he's quite a well-known kind of guy. He probably won't, he won't mind me. I mentioned it to him that we'll be talking about him. And he's um, he's got he, he's in Canada at the moment. He's coming back and he's going to be setting up a PTSD type of business. But also, you know, the obvious spin out from that is sort of resilience training and things like that within the corporate world. What a fantastic and interesting kind of business model, but not really what I call a traditional business model. Um We've got a, a nice GP in Bristol who's setting up rehab facilities for people who come out of neurological units who, you know, whose care sort of finishes after about six weeks. And he's got specialist physios who deal with, you know, stiff joints and things like that. But he, he literally said, um, do I need wheelchair access? You know, do, have I, do I have to have a place with wheelchair? You know, how does the CQC work? And people are so scared of things. Well, actually, when you break things down into the basics, they're just a series of steps. 
and it's just about being organized. So what we do is we take it, the sort of stress out of it and make it uh, organized for you by showing you exactly, actually how to do it. Awesome. I, I mean, I love it. Like, like I said, I think breaking down a barrier that helps somebody to get started is just, mm. you know, is, is very rewarding uh, to do as well. Like me and Ed find Medics Money much more rewarding than we thought because people yes. are like, yeah, you got me started on my financial journey. And for you, you get them started on their private practice uh, journey. So there's also a community element to the course, yeah, I believe. Right. Tell me mm. about that. Well, we decided to build in a, a community within the course um, structure because I think actually the the most the most important thing is is other people solving other people's problems and so you know the power of the community is is absolutely there i thought initially i thought oh, gosh you know well that's a great idea i'm going to set up a ptsd specialist clinic as well you know don't take my idea <laughs> but, but but i think actually it's amazing how um open and we wanted it to be quite a closed format because i think people need the confidence to sort of offload and actually i didn't realize how intimidated people thought they were going to be of me. You know, it was like, I didn't want to mention because, you know, all I'm doing is some GP rehab thing. It didn't seem like you know anything like, you know, Harley street medicine. And in fact, I think sometimes I think we've got the wrong message across in the sense that I think people um, think that we're trying to sort of set people up for a central London, you know, uh, international practice kind of stuff. Whereas in fact, actually it's, if you're a, a, a GP in Yorkshire who who's um, got a really cool idea about something, you know that that's exactly the sort of person we want. And I think the the really fascinating thing about the community is hearing people's stories and, and that mentoring. It's a sort of it's it, it, education and teaching. Every, I don't know any doctor who doesn't enjoy uh, teaching medical students. I love examining medical students. I love watching them squirm slightly um just sort of that you know you've all been there um you know and it's 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 terrifying and you know you bless them you know <laughs> I mean, they look so little now <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i just think this is a really nice <laughs> idea just to help people on that first step the community yeah. thing i love that because you're all kind of um going through it and learning it together um you learn off each other don't you yeah absolutely and they can benefit from the expertise of you and um, your brother who sounds Mm. like an an interesting Mm. character as well Mm. um awesome so you're generously offering medics money podcast listeners a 25 percent discount off the course and you can also go and watch a free 25 minute webinar where giles takes you through the very basics that everyone needs to get started in private practice And you can access this by visiting www.privatepracticepro.co.uk forward slash medics money. And that's where you access the free 25 minute webinar and the discount code. And I've dropped that link in the show notes below. Uh, At the end of the podcast, I always like to uh, ask people uh, if you could go back in time and tell, I won't ask you to say the date um, because I'm already a bit reticent to say the date that I was a junior doctor, Um, but you could go back and tell your junior doctor self one or two things. What would it be? Do you know, I think one of the the things that 
I would encourage everyone to do is always, always, always put your family decisions in front of your career decisions. You might be presented with the most amazing opportunity to do something, to work at the National Hospital for Neurology and da, 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 you know, some amazing professorial opportunity. And it may not be the right thing to do for your family because your wife might be working or your partner might be working somewhere and you might have to geographically split. Never, ever do that because, you know, life isn't like that. You've got to put your family, you've got to, I always looked at older doctors watching them sort of burn out quite quickly. And I didn't, it really scared me that you could be 55 and look like you were 100. And actually a lot of them died after retirement, you know, through ill health. And I thought, I'm not doing that. I'm in it for the long game. So always, always put your family first. And also, when you're enjoying something, a speciality, a lot of people get so fixated. They're, even in their A-levels now, these poor students are sort of deciding what speciality they want to do before they've even done medicine. You know, um, just if you really enjoy obs and gynae, run with it. Now, if you're rolling up the ladder fairly steadily, then keep going. You know, um, if you are at an obvious barrier and it's obvious that really don't grind away uh, for years in something you're never going to get there. But, you know, I've got colleagues, my, my housemates from medical school, you know, the class of, you know, we were dreadful, you know, in the pub for a year and a half for the first year of medical school. And I won't mention him, but he, you know, this one of my colleagues was the most poor junior doctor. He could, couldn't take blood. He, he had it, it totally illegible handwriting. He, he was late for, every, late for exams, late for everything. It was a complete disaster is one of the most pioneering neurosurgeons in the country now. And, you know, I had to sort of double check myself when I read something in the paper about him because I thought it can't be him. So from humble beginnings, people grow. So if you want to be a brain surgeon, go for it. Keep going. But don't don't flog a dead horse and never, ever um, put your family second place to your career. And if you want kids and you're interested in having, just get on with it because, Having, you know, I, I, we were having children when we, at the worst time, we had no money, um, doing nights. My wife was doing A&E, which is, you know, a newborn baby in A&E shifts, uh, uh, not a great combination. No. But you get through it. You just leave them with other people and they say, you know, they're okay. Uh, and uh, the pleasures come later, as I'm sure you would say. So family first and pursue what you're doing while you're enjoying it. Really, really wise words for the juniors that are listening to this. Thank you so much for that. Um, I'll drop the links uh, for the Private Practice Pro course and the discount code in the links below. And uh, thank you so much for your time today, Giles. It was no a real pleasure really catching up with it. you. Really enjoyed it. Nice talking to you. And you can access this by visiting www.privatepracticepro.co.uk forward slash medics money. And that's where you access the free 25-minute webinar and the discount code. And I've dropped that link in the show notes below.